Catch us on the web at english.rti.org.tw. Thanks for being with us here today on Radio Taiwan International for today's English language feature programs. Coming up ahead this hour, we will have Stroke of Light with Jake Chen. Then we'll be having Eye on China with Natalie So taking us for a look at current affairs on the other side of the Taiwan Strait. And that will be followed by our weekly Mandarin language lesson, Chinese to Go. But we'll get the day underway with Here in Taiwan. Welcome to Here in Taiwan. It's Thursday, December the 20th, 2018. I'm Charlie Stora, sitting in the host chair today. With me in the studio is Shirley Lin. Hello. Hello, Shirley. And John Van Trieste is Hi here there, as well. Charlie. Hello, John. Well, today we we're talking about how uh, the fines have begun for people who attempt to bring meat products into Taiwan as the uh, checks for uh, possible entry of African swine fever heat up. We'll be hearing about uh, Taiwanese golf legend Yani Zhang is apparently having to sell her luxury home in Orlando. And we'll be hearing about uh, very kind-hearted attempts to help a delivery man who accidentally wrecked multiple Ferraris. These stories coming right up. All right, well, let's start off today talking about uh, African swine fever, the threat thereof. This is something that we're reporting in the news on pretty much a daily basis now. This is uh, uh, obviously something that is in China, has spring spreading across China, is in more than 20 provinces uh, in mainland China, and poses a real threat to Taiwan's uh, economy, really, because if it were to make the jump over the Taiwan Strait, it's very, very serious and dangerous disease for pigs. It's invariably fatal. That's what uh, Premier William Lai uh, told the public yesterday as he was setting up the government's task force, a special response task force that's been uh, set up uh, in anticipation that African swine fever could at some point uh, get across here and really have a devastating effect on Taiwan's pig farming industry. Now, part of attempts to try and get people to, uh, well, try and stop the disease entering the country is stepping up checks at uh, airports and major points of entry and really ramping up the fines for anyone who's caught trying to smuggle meat products into the country. And this is quite a task because it's something that people do do if they go uh, abroad, if they, if they go away and they come back. They like to bring food products back with them mm. and often including meat. And this is something that's very, very, very common. So much so that people don't really see the harm in it. Uh, people are quite sort of complacent uh, about it. So there's been a big campaign. We were talking last week about, uh, like, there was a text message. The government sent a text message to everyone in the country, to every cell phone in the country. Mm, it was alarming. And we were, we were discussing, you know, was that, uh, uh, you know, was that a bit too much? Was that a bit much? I, I certainly had some people <laughs> feel like 
come on, this isn't, is this really, this isn't an earthquake, this isn't a typhoon or an imminent sort of natural disaster that's about to hit. But you can see how seriously the government's taking it mm. as a potential national security issue. And so fines have been ramped up. And so yesterday we had, uh, well, the day before yesterday at the time that you're hearing this program, is uh, was the first time that people were hit with the newly increased fines of 200,000 Taiwan dollars for a first-time offence. Mm. So that's 6,500 US dollars. And this uh, happened to two women uh, who, uh, two separate incidents of two women returning from visits to China and got slapped with... Uh, this fine and were rather surprised and dismayed uh, for that to be the case. Uh, They're both caught with pork products. The first was a 50-year-old Chinese woman who was caught with 15 packs of pork jerky. 15? 15 packs. How much do you need? Uh, Well, it's weighing a total of 200 grams, so it's not a huge amount of jerky. I think they were small, fairly small, individually wrapped packs. Uh, She arrived at Taoyuan Airport from a flight uh, on a flight from Fuzhou, southeastern China. So she became the first person to be fined this new $200,000 f- uh, uh, fine for smuggling meat products into Taiwan. Um, that's after the Council of Agriculture on Monday announced that the fees had been, fines had been raised to between 50000 Taiwan dollars, uh, so it's at 1.6 thousand US dollars to 200,000, as we say, 6,500 US dollars for first-time offenders. Mm. That's your first offense you, you could get hit with that kind of fine. And then between 500000 and $1 million Taiwan dollars, so we're talking up to 32000 US dollars for repeat offenders. And it's amazing that there would be repeat offenders after their first one. You You would think that would probably... <laughs> Yeah, well, where's no. like the PR campaign though as well? I mean, we got a text message, but even no TV ads, no YouTube ads. I mean, I guess uh, you and I may take that for granted because we're expats here. We're used to this international travel thing. We know you can't do that sort of thing, but apparently there are a lot of people who don't know that. So where is the publicity? Well, it was there uh, despite announcements on the airplane and signs at the airport. Okay. As the report says here, the officers cited the woman as saying that she was unaware of the new regulations and was astonished to learn that pork jerky was banned from entering Taiwan. But you can't really usually bring that when you... I mean, they may not regard that as international travel, but it's crossing a sort of customs it's crossing check. crossing a, a border, yes. Right. Yeah, crossing a, a customs you go through immigration border. and customs, and so... And I'm, and you, you know, uh, so you can't do that sort of thing. It's not... It's the same with fruits, right? Right. Well, um, I think there's a sort of sense here. Well, it's, you know, it's packaged, it's in plastic, it's, you know, it's yeah. dried meat. It's not like I'm bringing a whole, Right. You know, I'm guessing they think that because it's cooked in. meat, it's not like a whole chunk of raw mm. meat or something. Um, so this is a woman, she's married to a Taiwanese man. She spent, uh, so she spent $3 to purchase the 15 packs of pork <gasps> jerky in China. So she's now out about $6,497. Oh. <laughs> no, I do feel a bit sorry for her, but... Still, uh, the second offender, uh, also a Chinese woman married to a Taiwanese man, you might have less sympathy for this one, was caught carrying 580 grams of sausages. Which she... <laughs> Why do you need to travel with that? And what, wouldn't it go bad above all that if it's just like laying out? Well, again, you know, maybe it's smoked, it maybe it's wrapped. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, pro- it's probably wrapped in, in, okay. in plastic, probably sealed in... Uh, so it's not just like loose sausages. Like, well, the, but then it, that probably does happen as well. The, the I'm, I'm sure that does Essential happen. travel accessory.
Okay, uh, John, uh, let's talk about people who've set up like a charity uh, fundraising to help a man who had a rather unfortunate accident. Tell us about it. A very sad story. And uh, when I first read the headline, I went multiple, like Ferraris, more than one of them. How do you manage that? Well, how you manage that, it turns out, is when they're all parked together. Because sometimes in Taiwan, people like to go, they're sort of like bikers almost. They like to go on sort of group drives. Mm. And, you know okay. what I mean? Uh, especially out, uh, if you're in Taipei, out to Elon's a popular destination towards the east. Uh, you've got some nice open landscape over that way. So anyway, these uh, this group of, of people were gathered for one of these rides and they're very so like expensive Ferrari cars. owners club yeah sort yeah. of that kind of a thing show off and your pets you know <laughs> it was very early in the morning on Sunday and December 16th and a delivery man sort of just fell asleep behind the wheel now this young man is just 20 years old and he was only out on the road because his mother wasn't feeling well and like basically uh, you know his oh, yeah, father's can, not around it's, it's a very story. no it's a, I mean it's a it is a they're in pretty tight uh, financial straits to begin with and so it's a tough situation they were in to begin with and now he's faced with a uh, 1.6 million US dollar bill with no way to Ouch. pay it so how many Ferraris did he in fact damage so it's the says it says here that he smashed into four Ferraris oh, however one of the owners uh, decided not to file a claim because all that happened was some damage to the, the, the back license plate. But how he uh, did significant damage to two of them, though. And one got damaged to its rear bumper. So that's three Ferraris to mm. fix up. Do we, do we call this a Farago, I think. I guess so. If <laughs> you damage more than one. As Oscar Wilde might have said, to uh, damage one Ferrari may be regarded as misfortune. To damage several <laughs> looks a lot like <laughs> carelessness. Well, um, so what's so tell us about what's uh, so people have come together and said, "Ah, oh, you poor guy." Yeah, let's, I mean, let's do something for you. I mean, he's really helping out his mother, who has three children, and one of them still in school, and they're in, a, like I said, a tight financial situation. She owns a Joss paper shop, one of these religious goods stores, and he was out on a delivery run for her when he fell asleep. The police were called and did a breathalyzer test. He had no, he wasn't drinking at all, zero alcohol blood content so uh people do feel really bad about this because i guess of just overwork Mm. and uh, exhaustion and so um among the people who've come stepped in to help is one exchange student from australia who i think may be uh, ethnic chinese his surname is chen who showed up who heard about this and came into the his mother's store on monday and gave them fifty thousand NT dollars in a red envelope which for a lot of people is a good month's salary not nearly enough to fix everything but Mm. a, a start and he said, you know, he's a bit well off and he's the same age as it happens. And so he felt like I can do something, so I should. So that was uh, really nice. And then someone who runs a paint importing business, I guess they do sort of body work and the painting work jobs on cars, uh, has also come forward to help out with some of the repair costs. So uh, uh, the police, who I guess are in charge of the district, where the area where this happened, the precinct said that as of 9 a.m. on December 18th, more than 45 people have contacted them trying to figure out what they can do and we you know where they can send the money and who they need to get in touch with to make this happen. Okay, well, uh, let's move on then to this uh, final story today. And it concerns uh, Taiwanese golfing legend Yanni Zung, who's also uh, fallen on a little bit of difficulty the, in recent uh, years. Shirley, tell us more. Right, we're talking about Taiwan's golf legend and former world number one player, uh, Yanni Zeng, who has gone nearly six years without a title. But uh, recently, she uh, announced that she's going to sell her luxury house in Orlando, Florida. 
And um, well, she, in 2009, she actually bought it uh, from Sweden's former world number one player, that's uh, Annika Sorenstam, um, who is now retired from the uh, LPGA tour. Um, and she bought it for 2.1 million US dollars. So the lot is a four room house. And it sits on an area of 5,400 square meters. Just a four-room house, did you say? Maybe it's a four-huge-room house. <laughs> okay. Yeah, your, your luxury mansions tend to be a bit bigger than Maybe that. Maybe it's right. four bedrooms is what they mean yeah. by rooms. Right, 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 yeah. And then um, actually has a trophy display shelf in one of the rooms. Um, Zen said that once uh, she dreamed that she would fill that shelf with championship trophies. But anyway... Um, so Jiang Yitzhen was telling reporters that my friend's elderly family member said Sorenstam had used up all the good luck the house could have brought to its owner. And, uh, and I guess that's why. Actually, they but were really good friends. that's not true because she bought it in 2009. Yes. And that was before she went on her huge run. She was at her peak around about 2011, 2012 right. when she was absolutely unstoppable and she won everything in sight. So Ooh. I think she's got pretty good luck out <laughs> of that house, if anything. Yeah, that's true. Well, they were really, really good friends um, before, you know, together. Anyway, um, yeah, well, anyway, Yanni Zhen was saying, that once the house is sold, she plans to buy another new house in California to be closer to her family so that she can take care of them. Um, so 10 years have passed since uh, Yanni Zhen first joined LPGA, and she reached the heights of her career in 2011, like you said, Charlie, with mm. good memory. And she won seven tournaments in a single year. Uh, that was like her top record there. Yeah, so she um, pretty much filled up that room <laughs> in that one year alone. <laughs> right. Well, she said, um, you know, reflecting on her glorious past, that success came to her too quickly and that she was not ready for it. So um, she was just too eager to make bigger strides by learning more playing and mental techniques to the point that she was not quite herself. And she said that if she were to return to another peak in her career, she would be ready this time. So that she'll play differently. Well, no, I think even, uh, even if she were to never win another com- uh, competition, she is still, you know, a true legend of, of, yes, of the game. Yes, And what yes. she achieved at such, at such a young age is really, really amazing. So, it is, it is. So I hope she gets to uh, sell her house for a good price and, uh, and uh, move over to California. Well, that's all for today's Here in Taiwan. Don't go away. We've got Stroke of Light, Eye on China, and Chinese to Go coming right up. We'll be back at the end of the hour to bring you one more thing before we sign off for the day. But till then, I'm Charlie Starrer. I'm Shirley Lin. I'm John Ventriest. Stay tuned. Stroke of Light, a portrait of Taiwan through the eyes of painters, sculptors, filmmakers, and photographers. Hello and welcome to Stroke of Light. I'm Jake Chen. This week, we'll continue our coverage of Taipei Photo 2018. In the last few weeks, we'll look at how Latin American photographers use surreal elements to add visual punch and intensity to their photographs. 
The effect was especially chilling, gut-wrenching even, when we look at the works of Mauricio Torogoya and Pablo Ortiz Monasterio. Both documented acts of political killing and torture with their photographs. In today's episode, we'll be heading to a different direction and look at intimate complicity, a set of concept photographs by Guatemalan photographer Luis Gonzalez Palma. Concept photography is very, very unique genre as far as photography is considered. Photography has its roots firmly planted in realism, as it is a medium mostly characterized by its capability to faithfully record reality. We can almost argue that since photography's inception, it has been the de facto medium through which important incidents in the world have been recorded and viewed and remembered. Just think of what we know about the world-changing events, the two world wars, the civil movement, and the anti-war protests in the West, as well as more recent events such as the breaking of the Berlin Wall. Other than television, all of our memories of these events are constructed based on the photos we see. So naturally, we as viewers expect photographers to record what's out there with little input of their own. And here's where concept photography departs from convention. Unlike photojournalism, and drastically different from the conventional purposes of photography, concept photographers use the medium to illustrate an idea. What is in front of the camera lens is never a matter of capturing or timing, but rather the result of the photographer's mental projection, realized as they carefully place and manipulate subjects. Including humans and physical items. For instance, concept photography has often been used to help drive social progress. We've seen images of people of different races and ethnic backgrounds standing together. These photos are often made to push for racial diversity. We've also seen very artistic concept photos from the like of Salvador Dali, where the artist himself, his cat, his chair. And every other piece of furniture are suspended in midair. A bottle is even tilted, and the water is in the process of being poured out. The photo looks physically impossible at first glance, and by having Dali floating in midair along with his pets and belongings, it conveys the artist's personality, which is filled with unbridled imagination and playfulness. Now, let's take a look at an intimate complicity. From Luis Palma. Each one of his images is uniquely different, but one thing they all share in common is their composition. While we're used to having rectangular photographs, Palma's photos are all framed in round circles. This feature immediately piques my curiosity, and I think Palma intentionally made the viewer look through the circles. To make them feel like they're peeking through a window, into another realm that they're not familiar with, into someone else's space. This instantly creates a sense of intimacy around the subject matter. So, what are the subject matters? A young woman sits on the couch in a somewhat uneasy posture. Her back leans towards the left of the screen, and she turns her head to the same direction. 
her eyes filled with longing and melancholy, as if she is seeking or waiting for someone who might come from outside the frame. The couch has this obscure, almost sensual mixture of burgundy and brown color, and the wall behind the couch is a sea of repeating patterns of a blue flower. One light hue on the wall, closer to the right edge of the frame, is giving off this faint yellow light, barely illuminating the area. The woman raises her right hand to gently touch her lip, while her left hand rests on her belly. But there is another hand, a third hand extends from behind the right side of her hip, and wraps around her waist. In any other circumstances, this might make the photograph spooky. Scary, even, but in this case, the third hand only adds to the melancholy. It is as if the young woman is yearning so much for warmth, for personal connection, that her thoughts have taken on a life of their own and materialize in the form of a hand that holds her. Yet, as the word complicity in the title suggests, what she yearns for might not be rightfully hers, and it could be something that she never gets. This idea of wanting yet not getting what one yearns for creates a heartbreaking tension, and it permeates throughout all the photographs in this series. In another photo, we see a young man dressed in suits facing an older gentleman, presumably a father figure. The older man looks straight at the young man with this direct, intense gaze. The young man's back is turned to us, and he turns his head to the right. His chin tilted down, avoiding the older man's intense glare. His unwillingness to share emotions is very clear. What is also clear is that the two share this inseparable tie, in the form of, well, an inseparable tie. The young man's tie literally extends from his collar, and connects to the bow tie of the fatherly figure. No matter how much of an emotional gap separates these two, the tie symbolizes that the bond between the two cannot be broken. We don't even see any human subject in the third photograph. Two chairs face each other across a wooden table, and in the background, we see old books filling up rows and rows of bookshelves. Other than the table, the entire room is poorly lit. And we almost feel like we're looking through the rounded frame, through this old sepia tint, making the items in the room feel even more dated. The element that stands out is the physical placement of the two chairs. They're not on either side of the table. No, they're actually closer, and the backs of the chairs literally stick through the table's top surface. The bottom portion of the two chairs, although mostly engulfed in the darkness, Are very close, as if they are touching each other. Again, the tension is created between the intimate distance between the two chairs and their physically impossible positions. Though no human subject is present, I like this one in particular as it allows us, the viewers, to project our own sense of closeness onto the scene. The two wooden chairs could really be anything or anyone. 
They could be star-studded lovers separated by time and space, or the one that we long to connect with, but it's impossible to get to. Within the small area around the wooden desk, an infinite amount of stories are possible. The sense of connection and tension is created with the carefully manipulation of light, illumination, shadows, and the spatial relationship between subjects. This probably has to do with Mr. Palmer's background. He majored in both film studies and architecture during his studies in university, and I suspect it was then that he developed this uniquely creative method, through which he's able to construct mood and stories by meticulously staging human and physical subjects in a way that creates distance and tension. And by doing so. He manages to convey to us emotions and relations that are much stronger and more complex than any individual element can convey. This, I believe, is the essence of the power of concept photography. It allows artists to not just capture what's out there in the world, but to create a world based on what's inside of them. Photography is immense, and Mr. Gonzalez Luis Palma is one of the bright stars in concept photography. As hard as I have tried, I don't think my description has done justice to his photos, and I sincerely urge you to further look into his work on the internet. Thank you for listening to Stroke of Light. I'm Jake Chen. Talk to you next time. What do you know about Taiwan? I know who the president is. What about their local music and food? Well, hmm. What do you suggest? Tune in to Radio Taiwan International. Here at RTI, we offer the authentic Taiwan experience. You hear the sound of remote attractions, the local food, music, the lives of real Taiwanese as they live it. Visit english.rti.org.tw. Listen to the real Taiwan. Eye on China: First-hand perspectives on a quickly changing society. Hello and welcome to Eye on China. I'm Natalie So. Many Tibetans want freedom from China, and one way of demonstrating resistance is self-immolation. Today, I speak with the chief resilience officer of the Tibetan government in exile, Kedar Akastan, who gives us insight. Into this tragic, extreme form of protest. Why do you think there have been so many self-immolations 
Is that part of the Buddhist way of thinking, or um, is yeah, self immolation? Yeah, Natalie, that's really, uh, uh, really, really sad. And we had another young male Tibetan, you know, 23 years old, in the area of uh, Amdung Abba, who self-immolated. So he's now the 153rd, you know, person who's uh, committed this extreme form of, you know, protest. And the way I see it, Natalie, is that uh, this is the, the extreme manifestation of what's happening inside Tibet. Because when you take away that little space that exists or existed, and when you have nowhere else to to turn to in order to express your you know your discontent or your unhappiness, then people are being forced to you know to go to such you know lengths. And uh, I mean, I wouldn't say this is in keeping with uh, Tibetan Buddhism. Um, there's nothing in Tibetan Buddhism that um, that encourages you know such actions. But it's really coming more from a personal level, and it's coming from the current, you know, this really difficult environment where every aspect of the Tibetan life is controlled, right? Uh, and I, I don't want to go through this whole list, but uh, but what I sometimes really fail to comprehend, Natalie, is can the authorities not realize how counterproductive, you know, their measures are, right? So on the one hand. They pay lip service to, you know, saying they want stability in Tibet and they were all part of one big family. But then in the actual policies on the ground, there's clearly a discrimination, you know. Tibetans being treated as second-class citizens in their own, you know, in their own homeland, in their own backyard. Uh, so things just like very basic things like uh, Tibetans cannot travel to the Tibetan Autonomous Region. Uh, they can, but they have to go through so many hoops. So say if I'm a Tibetan living outside TAR, and let's say I arrive at the Lhasa railway station, I have to have a number of, you know, things in place which are not applicable to, you know, other, you know, you know Chinese or, you know, uh, any other. Cities, yeah, right. Yeah. Things like I have to have a local guarantor in oh. Lhasa, somebody who will vouch for me mm-hmm. and say that, you know, I'm a good citizen. Uh, I have to show a special card and uh, subject myself to some really strict, you know, screening. Uh, whereas, you know, if I'm a Chinese from Shanghai and I've just arrived by train into Lhasa, I can just pick my bags and walk through the security, you know, mm-hmm. no questions asked. But a Tibetan, they have all the system. They have everything on, on, on record, right? This extreme form of surveillance that Tibetans are subjected to, you know. In 2018, you know, the Freedom House came out with this uh, Freedom Index and they listed Tibet as the second least free country oh. you know, on the planet after Syria. Oh I mean, the level of surveillance, every Tibetan now, their information resides in the database. There is this um, this new generation of chip where you have all the, you know, who am I, how many kids do I have, who's working in the government, you know, which schools my kids are going to, all that is there in the database. And as Tibetans pass through checkpoints or, you know, they just, you know, they just scan that and the information comes up on the screen, right? So, yeah, it's this. Uh, and then, of course, the issues like, you know, like we had for thousands of years, Tibetan nomads traveled across the grasslands of Tibet, you know, taking their yaks and their cattle and moving from, you know, point A to point B. And in the process, maintaining that very delicate relationship between, you know, with the the ecosystem, the landscape. But now, what do the, uh, what's the current policy? It's one of forced resettlement, relocation. So the nomads are now all being rounded up. And I think this process is actually more or less complete. 
and they're being forced to live in permanent locations. And that's triggered you know, a host of problems because they're not used to that kind of lifestyle, right? These are nomadic people. They live off the land, but in a very sustainable way. But uh, what the authorities have done is no, you know, you can't do that. And of course, they came up with some very uh, nice, you know, sounding rationale. Oh, because, you know, of the fragile environment, you know, because the, the nomads were kind of destroying the environment through overgrazing or, you know, something to that effect. But that's not really the issue. The issue is about control. Because when people don't live in a particular location, it's harder to track them. It's mm. harder to control them. Right. Uh, so now you have these really shoddy constructions. And so that has led to real social problems like, you know, domestic violence, alco- alcoholism. But these are all, I mean, then you talk about, you know, what they're doing to the environment, you know. Um, so when you have this kind of external environment, uh, in some ways, uh, really, you can't uh, help but, you know, uh, sympathize with Tibetans. But then, Natalie, the way this is done is not a random act of violence. You know, it's really carefully thought through. And uh, they plan it down to the last detail. Uh, so it's done in a very public place, but away from crowds, you know, because they don't want, through their action, to hurt anybody physically. You're talking so about self-immolation, Yes, yes, right? I'm talking about self-immolators. So if you have seen some of those very difficult, you know, videos, which are very graphic, you always see them in, in some public places to draw attention, but it's away from, you know, I mean, they can easily go next to a big shop, supermarket, you know, and, and, and just blow themselves right. up, right? Nothing. That, that hasn't happened. Uh, so they're hurting themselves. They're hurting they themselves, but they see it as a, as, as a sacrifice that they have to make. And we have encouraged them not to do that, you know, mm. uh, both formally, informally, and pri- you know, privately as well. And we've been somewhat successful over the last several months. So this recent incident on, came at a time when there's been a, a decline. You know, in, in the case of self-immolation. But still, uh, I, I lay the responsibility squarely on, 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 on China and uh, the current leadership. Unless they change the policies, unless they step away from this very hard-line, repressive uh, approach that they've taken, I, I just don't think uh, they can win the hearts and minds of the Tibetan people, which is what they want to do, right? Mm-hmm. And they've tried a number of different ways, you know, military, economic, and uh, other It's controls. hard to do that, though, if you're controlling yes. people, right? Yes, yes, yeah. They want freedom. And what is their reaction? You know, they have criminalized this action. They have meted out collective punishment to the family members. Mm. And if you survive this, this act, then you're either killed or you're kind of locked away for the rest of your life. So that's why Tibetans, they make sure that they actually die because the worst thing is you go through this very painful, extreme form of, you know, uh, resistance, you know, if you don't, um, if you don't, if you, die, if you don't then die, then the consequences are even more, you know, you'd be more tortured. Severe. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah, probably. yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, well, um, Cater, there's so much uh, on your plate, I think. Right. You're taking care of your people. Right, right. Um, you know, we really do wish you the best of luck in, in achieving freedom and uh, taking care of all the needs and right. the culture of your people. Right. And, um, no, I would end on a more positive note because when you talk about self-immolation and all, it, you know, it's, these are very painful topics and um, it takes us to you know, some uh, dark places. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, really overall, uh, you know, we are very optimistic uh, because uh, you know, 50 years in the context of uh, you know, the history of our people, you know, it's not a long time, right? So, and, I, I, and I really believe that uh, nothing is permanent. Uh, as Buddhists, we have to, you know, that's mm. the, 
the belief system that we were raised with. So yes, uh, these last 20 years we've seen the rise of China, but we will also come to a point when China's fortunes also take a dip, that it doesn't appear as invincible or as powerful as, uh, as they currently appear. So when that happens, I think uh, you know, things will open up. And the other thing that gives me hope is, I think in the Dalai Lama, we have someone you know, who just exemplifies you know, kind of, you know, the approach that, uh, and the kind of leadership that we need. So I really have this deep belief that um, during his lifetime, that we will see, you know, we will see a path forward. Uh, and so for that, you know, we need support as well. So that's why, you know, I mean, we're here and reaching out to the people of Taiwan, you know, to the government of Taiwan. Well, I think that Taiwan is on your side, I would say, at least, at the very least, and we share the same values right, right. for democracy and freedom and human rights, right. which we want to maintain here. And right. we hope that we see them in your people, too. Yeah. So, yeah. well, it's, it's great that you're in Taiwan. And thank you so much for coming by to uh, tell us more about your people. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Natalie. That was Kedar Akastan, the Chief Resilience Officer of the Tibetan Government in Exile, the Central Tibetan Administration. Thanks for tuning in to Eye on China. I'm Natalie So. Fitting In in Chinese is a special series on Chinese to go, which is jointly produced by the Chinese Language Center of Wenzhou Ursuline University of Languages and Radio Taiwan International. Fitting in in Chinese. 第八十二集, Episode 82, Menu. Dialogue. Ah, Walking has tired me out. I'm starving. 前面那家餐厅是川菜、台菜馆吗? Is that restaurant up ahead serving Sichuan and Taiwan-style dishes? 是的,这家餐厅有四川口味、台湾口味的菜,都很好吃。Yes, this restaurant has both Sichuanese and Taiwanese dishes, and they're all good. 我饿了,我们快进去吧。I'm hungry. Let's go. 河菜看起来不错。我们点三菜一汤，九百九十九块钱，好吗？The combination set meal looks pretty good. Let's order three dishes and one soup for nine hundred ninety nine Three dishes and one soup isn't enough to fill up on. We need at least four dishes and a soup. 好好好,我来点。我们点小盘的青椒牛肉,宫保鸡丁,麻婆豆腐,再加上开洋白菜,这四道菜就够我们吃了。All right, let me see. We can get a small order of beef with green pepper, gongbao chicken, spicy tofu, and add bok choy with dried shrimp. This ought to be enough for us. 
再来碗大碗的海鲜羹，好吗 ？How about a big bowl of seafood chowder too? 好的，快呀！我的口水都流出来了。All right, hurry up! I'm starting to drool. 你看，我们自己点喜欢的菜，一共才八百七十块钱，比点盒菜更划算呢。See, we've all ordered what we like. All together, it comes to eight hundred and seventy NT dollars. Cheaper than ordering the combination set meal. 文藻川菜台菜馆菜单：青椒牛肉、椒盐里脊、宫保鸡丁、北京烤鸭、糖醋鱼、腰果虾仁、麻婆豆腐、开阳白菜、炒青菜。蚂蚁上树，酸辣汤，海鲜羹，河菜，附水果，三菜一汤九百九十九元，四菜一汤一千一百九十九元，五菜一汤一千两百九十九元，六菜一汤一千四百九十九元。电话：零七三四二六零三一。传真：零七三四二六零二九。地址：高雄市三明区明珠一路九百号。啊，走得好累哦，饿死了。前面那家餐厅。是川菜台菜馆吗？是的，这家餐厅有四川口味、台湾口味的菜，都很好吃。我饿了，我们快进去吧。河菜看起来不错，我们点三菜一汤，九百九十九块钱，好吗？三菜一汤不行，吃不饱，至少要四菜一汤。好，好，好，我来点。我们点小盘的青椒牛肉、宫保鸡丁、麻婆豆腐，再加上开阳白菜，这四道菜就够我们吃了。再来碗大碗的海鲜羹，好吗？好的，快呀、啊！我的口水都流出来了。你看，我们自己点喜欢的菜，一共才八百七十块钱，比点盒菜更划算呢。Thanks for listening to our programs here today at Radio Taiwan International. Don't forget, you can email us. The address is rti at rti.org. 
www.tw with any questions or comments you may have. Well, I'm Charlie Starr, back in the studio with Shirley Lynn and John Van Trieste, and we're going to leave you with one more thing. Shirley, uh, a while back we were talking about how uh, the government, uh, the Tourism Bureau, has been uh, offering subsidies for people wanting to have winter breaks, and they've just extended that subsidy programme. Tell us more about that. Yes, that is right. Um, it's decided to expand the winter travel subsidy programme to include a total of 19 cities and counties this time and um, they think that it's been pretty successful so far so they are hoping to extend it as well as extend it until the end of next month so uh, January end of January instead of end of uh, December and um, the 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 bureau uh, last month launched a program which uh, subsidizes travel to Yilan, Hualien, Taitung and Pingdong as well as Kaohsiung um, the, pro- the program has provided more than like 10 million U.S. dollars in subsidies to tourists heading to any of those five areas up till now. And the program has proven really successful in motivating domestic tourism, um, saying that it not only is going to continue its implementation, but also add 14, not four, but 14 other cities and counties, but excluding Taipei, New Taipei City and Taoyuan. Right, so it's focusing really here on the east coast, isn't it? From from Ilan up in the north, right down through Hualien and 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 Taidong, and then down to Pingdong in the in the south. Yes. So, yes. What, what offers can people get? So, tours must be at least two days long, with up to one day on a holiday, and uh, for uh, you know for you to be able to apply a subsidy, apply for a subsidy. Each person in the group will be entitled to a sixteen US dollar subsidy, while those older than sixty would receive a. 32 U.S. dollar subsidy. And so group subsidies are capped at almost like 1,000 U.S. dollars for tours on the Taiwan proper and uh, 1,600 U.S. dollars for tours to outlying islands. So the majority of the program's funding will be used to subsidize independent travelers. And to qualify for a subsidy, traveler must arrange tours that take place between Sunday and Thursday in the areas including the program. Now, each independent traveler will receive a 32 US dollar subsidy per hotel room while young travelers those that are and also those that are older than 60 and also parents with young children uh, can receive almost 50 US dollars per person in terms of subsidy so that's the thing you know um i just recently came back from Oolong farm um, which is in Taizong. And I remembered about the subsidy programs. So I told my daughter specifically um, to check out this subsidy program. And then she came back and said, oh, but Taizong's not included. And I said, okay, well, fine. We went anyway, and I thought the package was still pretty reasonable. It was a 4,000 NT for a night uh, in a wooden cabin. And um, actually, it was pretty uh, nicely, you know, like renovated. It's nice and spacious, you know, and the bathroom is clean and very new. Mm. So I thought it was good. And besides, uh, it includes breakfast and dinner and it's buffet. Well, I mean, the quality of the food might not be what I, you know, would have expected. But what can you ask for with that kind of price? And it turned out to be a great time because my daughter is planning on starting work on January uh, 2nd. And she's going to be a nurse. So probably it's going to be hard for her to take vacation. So that's why. But it was... uh, you know, I think that even if Taizong, uh, although Taizong City is included in this new subsidy program, but not Taizong, you know, you know the outlying places, I guess. I thought, it was, so, all, I thought it was all Taizong City now, no, isn't it? Like I, a special I, municipality like now? The urban center. Right. Yeah. So um, anyway, um, I guess, you know, they 
if they said, well, if the government's not going to help us with subsidy program, we'll, you know, make up some kind of discounts ourselves. <laughs> and that's what I think, you know. Very yeah. Good. Well, that's all we've got time for for today's programs. Thanks so much for being with us. Do join us again tomorrow when our programs will include Taiwan Today, live from Taipei, and another edition of Here in Taiwan. But for today, on behalf of all of us here at RTI, I'm Charlie Starrer, signing off for the day. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.